Being chairman of CSBS is no easy job. You have to lead the design and implementation of a strategic plan, represent state regulators in relationships with their federal counterparts, all while managing the regulatory department of your own state. In other words, not for the meek and mild. This is Simply Stated, a podcast by CSBS, the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, and I'm Jim Kurtzke. For the upcoming year, into the role of chairman steps Brett Aftal, director of the Division of Banking in South Dakota. We recently talked on-site at the CSBS annual meeting in San Antonio, just following his speech on what he plans for the year ahead. So let's give a listen. Okay, I am here with Brett Aftal. So, Brett, hello. Thanks for coming. Uh, Brett is the Director of Banking at the South Dakota Division of Banking, but more importantly, as of yesterday morning, is the new chairman of CSBS. So uh, I thought we'd just sit down and talk a little bit about like, you know, you know what you see uh, accomplishing as chairman, uh, what you would like to see happen in the next year, uh, and also sort of kind of how you got here in the first place. So, you know, welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so how did you get here? I mean, what? Tell me, like your career arc. You know, how did how did you get to the position you're in? Well, I'm probably like a lot of people that end up in um, the bank regulatory space. I didn't go to college thinking I was going to be a bank regulator, so it's kind of a, I suppose, an indirect path. But I, I guess I would go all the way back to high school. I wasn't a, um, I wasn't the best student in the world. I didn't necessarily like school. So while I was a, a junior in high school, I signed up in the delayed entry program and joined the Army. So not long after graduating from high school, I shipped off to Fort Benning, Georgia, and went through 16 weeks of training and then was assigned um, to go over across the state to Fort Stewart, Georgia, and spent the next couple years down there. Um, And really, I did that because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to go to school. Um, and I had some growing up to do, and you know, going through that process really opened my eyes to how how good I had things, even though that's maybe not what I thought at the time. Um, but so once when I got out um, in uh, November of 1994, I you know immediately signed up, at, uh, went back home to Aberdeen, South Dakota, and signed up um, for the, at the local college and started going to school. And I didn't really have a plan; I just I actually liked school then, so I just kept going to school. And I uh, worked my way through and uh, did work for, for a contractor and built houses along the way. Um, so I learned learned that while I was going to school. So I graduated with a political science and uh, business degree. And then uh, I still really didn't have a plan. And my, my dad kind of opened my eyes, as they sometimes do. And he said, well, now what are you going to do? I said, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, so I... Dads have a way of doing that too. Yeah, you know, he 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 made it real. So um, one of my one of my professors at at the university um, was a lawyer by training, but didn't really practice. And she said you should take a look at law school. Um, so I did. I applied. I got accepted. Um, so I went. That's what I did for the next three years and work kind of worked my way through that instead of going to Mexico or somewhere fun on Christmas break or. Spring break, I went to Aberdeen or Omaha to work for that contractor I'd worked for to work my way through. So 
Um, three years later, um, graduated, um, I took the bar exam, passed it, and then I started looking for jobs, originally thinking I'd get into private practice, but um, that was a little tougher than I thought. People were busy, but you know, not that busy, so um, there was an opening for a staff attorney at the Department of Revenue for the state of South Dakota, so I, I moved up here. And, you know, kind of the rest is history. So at that time, the Division of Banking was um, organized under the Department of Revenue. Okay. So I did some legal work for the Division of Banking, um, provided some opinions and did some research and things like that, attended their commission meetings. Um, and over time, they, they asked me to come to work for them. They hadn't had a staff attorney for a long time. So I moved over there after three years of being on the revenue staff, um, and then I was division counsel for not quite five years, I think it was about four and a half years, and the the director at the time was retiring and, and kind of had a, a plan in place for his then um, deputy director to take over, um, but he sat me down one day and said, the chairman of the banking commission wants you to put your application in for this position. So, okay, I hadn't really had any plan to do that, but when the chairman of the commission asks you to do that, you do it. So I interviewed with the, the commission and the secretary of then the Department of Labor um, through a governor reorganization. We'd moved from the Department of Revenue to the Department of Labor um, and met with the governor's office and things like that. And I was appointed in May of 2011. So that's that's how I got here. Uh, that is, that's a story. That is a story. That's a lot of adventure. You know, everything from the military to law school, uh, government service. Uh, uh, you've pretty much kind of touched all the bases here. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, some people have grand plans. Um, I have a 12-year-old son that wants to be an architect in the worst way, and that's great that he has a plan. I guess I'm probably a, an example that you don't necessarily have to have a great plan. Um, show up to work every day and work hard, and opportunities will come along. Um, maybe I was just lucky, but I think there is something to that if you just you know keep plugging away. And, and I stay pretty focused in the now um, and don't you know, spend a whole lot of time. You know, I, I, I haven't looked for a job since 2003 when I got out of law school, um, and it's worked out pretty well. That's a great position to be in, uh, particularly in any economy. That's a great position to be in. Um, how'd you get involved in CSBS? Um, I'd actually gotten involved before I um, went to work for the Division of Banking, um, and this was probably a grand scheme of the prior director, um, but I, while I was doing legal work for them a little bit while I was with the Department of Revenue, they said you could, they, uh, CSBS is our national organization and they do this thing called the Legal Seminar, you know, it'd be a good opportunity to meet some people and learn a little bit more about the legal issues that we face. So I went to Memphis, Tennessee in, this would have been, I think, July of 2006, um, and met Roger Stromberg on, on the roof of the Peabody Hotel, and kind of the rest is history. That's how I got involved, and um, after I was appointed, we were in Savannah for, um, it would be this meeting, the, the supervisory symposium, and a couple of the commissioners from the district, our, our district pulled me to the side, and they they had an impromptu election and railroaded me into becoming the, the district chair. <laughs> so that, that was my introduction to service with CSBS. So you didn't know whether that was a good thing or a bad yeah. thing. <laughs> I just knew that it happened. It and happened. They didn't really 
<laughs> Maybe they asked me if I wanted to do it. But So now you're in this position where you're chairman of the organization. What does that mean? What does it mean to be chairman of CSBS? Uh, well, first of all, it's a tremendous honor. Um, you know, I've been on the board since I suppose it was, it was either be 2013 or so. Um, so I've been involved for quite a while. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's clearly a different role. You go from advocating for or making people aware of issues in your state to now, I think, having the tremendous responsibility of speaking on behalf of the whole organization. Um, and, and at the board, you know, when we host board meetings or when we hold our board meetings, you know, the role there is to be objective through that process and to facilitate discussion and um, you know, walk through those difficult issues and at the same time, uh, you know, implement, as our parliamentarian, parliamentarian kind of put it, you implement the will of the majority while protecting the rights of the minority. So each side gets, gets their say before we make a decision, but, you know, maintain that neutrality and um, just try to conduct a good meeting. Um, but outside of that, you know, meeting with our federal counterparts to, um, make sure they understand our issues and our, our view of certain things and how we can make the system better. So it's, you know, you have to, it is a mix where you have to be polite and courteous and, and be able to be willing to work with them, but also, you know, let them know when, when we don't agree on something and advocate for those things. And that's kind of a balance too, because, you know, you know, you, uh, you know, you're a fellow regulator, and, and you don't want to come off uh, like as a lobbyist uh, per se. Uh, so, uh, when you have those conversations with federal officials, like, so what do you bring to the table? You bring some uh, insight on localities, or, or you know, what 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 helps you in those kind of conversations? Yeah, and I think yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you know, as I tried to point out in my my comments this morning. Um, I come from a rural state. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I know how things work in a in a big metro market. You know, I I've, I've been to them. I travel to through those places, but that's not what I know, and that's not who I am. I come from a very rural state, um, where small towns in my state are you know communities with 100 people or 75 people or 100 you know, 250 people, and knowing how policies that are decided in Washington impact those communities. Um, sometimes the way they intend, but there's generally impacts that uh, are not anticipated or mm -hmm. not expected and, and generally not always positive because they, they make things really complicated for those small banks to be able to function in today's environment, um, whether it's deposits or on the loan side. Right, right. So let's uh, turn a little bit to uh, some of the comments you gave earlier today. If you had to kind of describe a goal for yourself uh, for the next year, like what, you, what are you trying, what, what goal would you describe uh, for, for yourself or CSBS over the next year? Well, I think on the whole, I want, I wanted to keep, I want to keep us to keep advancing. You know, we have a lot of different specific initiatives underway and big projects in different stages of development. But overall, I want us to keep advancing. And so that's probably my overarching goal is to, we have some momentum um, and I want to carry that forward, but, uh, you know, and accelerate it to the extent we can. You laid out some, some specific markers, you know, for instance, you wanted to deliver, you want to deliver a a model MSB law, um, you know, during your time as chairman. 
um, want to see the the multi-state compact kind of take hold uh, during your time. So so you did lay out some specific markets markers for yourself, and that kind of serves as like an uh, an organizing principle for for everyone kind of working on those projects. Yeah, you know, and that's why I said kind of the overarching goal is to keep advancing. Um, but yeah, there are specifics that underlie that. That the MSB law, I think, is is huge. The model law is huge in my mind. Um, because I, I think if we don't do that, we, we're really just giving the folks that are pushing for the national, a na some kind of national charter or license, whatever you want to call it, more ammunition. Um, and, but I think the 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 model um, or the the MSB cooperative agreement is another part of that where we need to we need to have a more common standard on the law side the legal requirement side we also have to be a lot smarter and more efficient how we do the the supervision side where we're not doing multiple exams of the same company in the same year um, for all of the reasons that were laid out by Charles Cooper and the others is that. One, it's not a very good use of our resources. I mean, we're a, I'm a, you know, I run a small agency. We only have so many hours to do exams, and it doesn't make any sense in my mind to do an exam of a company that's already been examined. But there are state law impediments, as were as was discussed. You know, some states have to do their own exam every year, every other year, every third year, whatever the case may be. But I think that's. Part of the process is cataloging that and figuring out where we can make improvements. And, you know, that's where you probably need the industry to help. You know, you're saying we're putting a burden on you. Help us fix that case. Right. We can fix some of it ourselves just through the process. But in some cases, you need the industry to go into the legislature to say, you know, we support the agency or we're bringing this bill and they're supporting us to make this a more streamlined process for everybody. Right. So I, the thing that I kind of stuck in my head uh, when I was listening to you talk is uh, you had this comment of pushing outside your comfort zone uh, in both uh, who is regulated and how they are regulated. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on like, you know, what you mean by that? Yeah, uh, I'll even give you an example, you know, like at the state level, um, you know, we've in recent years, I, you know, I think most states have experienced growth in the money transmitter space, those money service businesses. But a lot, I guess from my experience, a lot of that growth is either in really advanced phone app type um, transmitter companies, or in some cases it's uh, blockchain related or cryptocurrency related. And, you know, there's a little bit of a leap of faith there. You know, we're a state, we don't have a lot of expertise in that area. Um, so we, we look a little bit at what other states a company like that is licensed mm -hmm. in if, and if they're licensed already in one of those bigger states, you know, we're, we're relying to some extent on their expertise while we get ramped up to better understand that. And we have a, kind of a similar change going on in our trust company space. You know, we, we, we charter and regulate a lot of trust companies, I think the most of any, any state in the country. And we've recently had some interest from um, people from groups wanting to be custodians for, um, digital currency, different kind of digital currency assets. And again, it, it's it's something new. It's something different. It definitely makes me uncomfortable. But, um, you know. Because you were, you're relying on somebody else. Yeah, well, in that space, you know, it it's we're less able to rely on those other state. We have, I mean, we have to own that because we're the chartering authority and generally the sole regulatory authority for that kind of a company. 
Um, so we have to get up to speed and get up to speed rapidly. Um, but you know, I think there's nothing in our statutory criteria about my comfort level. You know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's certain criteria you go through, and one of them is not how I what I think of the idea necessarily. Um, are they can they serve the the customers um, as they have it laid out in their application, and is their financial standing such that you know they're going to be successful i mean that's the criteria it's not whether i i necessarily agree with it or i would invest in something like that right on the uh, on the banking side um it, you know does your same principle of pushing outside the, uh, the comfort zone apply there yeah i believe so i think uh you know the spent a little time talking about broker deposits and i, I think that's a that's an area where um we have to make changes, I guess, in my mind, because the funding model is changing. Um, core deposits, especially in rural areas where, where I come from, um, it's not going to just be the same. That same level of loyalty in the community isn't going to be there. The next, And there's a generational component. Younger people are more comfortable putting having their money on a phone instead of walking into a branch. And we have to allow banks to continue to fund themselves. Otherwise, we're saying that we're not going to, you're not able to lend in your community anymore. And I think that's not a, that's not a positive outcome. So we need to figure that out. Yeah. And, and in your case, in your state's case, uh, the main industry is agriculture, right? So, I mean, that's not just feeding, you know, South Dakota, that's feeding an entire country. Um, and at times beyond uh, the country as well. So It is, it has um, bigger ramifications and and you know agriculture lending is very hands-on it's very customer specific um, because there's a lot of different um, variety there you have people that only grow corn and soybeans or they and even there you, you could have some that they own all of their own land so they have low cost points some of them rent a bunch of land so they they you know they either have that higher expense or they have debt against some of the land they're farming you have dairy operations, you have cattle feeders, you have cattle backgrounders, you have, there's a lot of nuance there. So it doesn't lend itself well to um, a large bank commoditized lending model or a platform type lending model where you're getting a, you know, a minute and a half credit decision because you plug in these different factors and it, it's got the green light, you know, there's a lot to it. And and I think those kind of borrowers are still looking for a one-on-one -on -one relationship. They want to. They want to have. They want to have somebody they can bounce ideas off of, and not call an eight hundred number and go through the, you know, press one two three game. Yeah, and and in the research that's been done, uh, you know, community banks seem to have a disproportionate uh, uh, impact on agricultural lending um, uh, relative to their assets. Uh, um, so. Uh, you know, that, that local customized knowledge, it's kind of hard to replicate, you know, just a, a, I think as you were saying. Let me shift a little bit to, <clears throat> you know, in your comments when you, you were talking a lot about um, on the on the non-banking side uh, of your authorities uh, and then the banking side. So the combination of banking and non-banking is kind of unique in the regulatory, uh, you know, ecosystem, if you will. Um, you know, is that what what makes state regulation unique or is there something else kind of going on? It, it definitely makes the states unique or sets us apart from our federal counterparts because they're, I don't want to say they're siloed, but they, 
you know, the Fed deals with member banks and holding companies, and the FDIC deals with non-member banks, um, and the OCC deals with national banks. And, you know, and they have a little bit, they have Congress authorize them to charter, you know, some non-bank trust companies and bankers' banks and credit card banks. But, you know, just the variety, you know, in our state, we have, you know, it's kind of the three-legged stool. We have banks, we have trust companies, and then we have our licensees. But even in the licensees, you have um, money lenders. So that can be consumer lenders, business lenders, um, some companies in there buy credit card receivables and service those. And we have mortgage, you know, mortgage lenders, brokers and originators, and then you have the money transmitter piece. So it, it's a lot, but compared to some of the other states, it's not. You know, you look at Illinois, the stuff that they have under that same department. You have hair braiders and the boxing commission and just, you know, so that's outside the financial sector. But it, it, it it's a challenge. I mean, it gives us some diversity. We see a lot of different things. We're able to train people on a lot of different things. But at the same time, we have to train people on a lot of different things. So there's a lot of complexity there and a lot of different things to um, be good at. How does that challenge CSB has? I mean, when you think about, you know, state regulators have to be, uh, you know, really, you know, on the ball on both the banking and the non-banking side. Um, I think it is a challenge, um, you know, from a training standpoint, but also from a board standpoint, you have, you have every state which is a member of CSBS has a different situation. So, um, you know, they, something of great interest to them may not be of great interest to, you know, a, a sizable number of other members of CSBS. I, the one thing I would point out, even since, you know, I've been active in CSBS going back to 2012, 2013, is how much time we spend now on non-banks relative to even you know, six, seven years ago, you know, because that was, you know, coming out of the crisis, um, you know, from you know, when I started with the division of banking was in the fall of 2006. So not long after that, 2000, spring of 2007, started hearing about new century mortgage and some of these things were very quickly entered the entered the crisis. So we spent a lot of time just on banks because it was crisis mode. That's what everybody was focused on. After that kind of passed, there's been this huge shift in certain business lines to non-banks. Um, and as a result, we're spending a lot more time dealing with those issues. And it, it's been a challenge. You know, there's some, some of our member agencies only deal with banks. So it's it, it makes it difficult for them or, you know, we're spending all this time talking about stuff that they don't supervise so that's it's a challenge to manage those relationships and and per, still provide benefits and services to those members so it's sort of like just circling back to uh, the beginning beginning of our chat yeah, you're saying one of the roles of the chairman is essentially to corral everybody um, and build consensus uh, among parties that may have different uh, regulatory scopes different opinions different laws um so th that does seem like a big challenge. So I guess my parting question is, so how do you get started? <laughs> um, What's next? Well, I, I mean, I think one thing we've really made a lot of effort to do in the last year in particular at CSBS is to prioritize, you know, get input from the members. And we did a lot of work at our strategic planning um, session last summer. You know, what, what are our priorities? And we boiled that down to, you know, five priorities for 2019. You know, so that really has to be our roadmap. We spent a lot of time building that. 
Um, but then there's some things that, um, you know, so feeding into that, I guess, like leveraging our relationship with the federal agencies. And I think that you come back to the broker deposits and the community bank leverage ratio. Those are two things that are really high on my radar and that I want to emphasize as chair because they, they impact our banks every day. Um, but then at the same time, on that non-bank side, there's a lot of work to do um, with the model state law and the... You've got Vision 2020 yep, in Vision 2020, the MSB agreement, all of those things. I mean, I think... So it is a balancing act, but I think we have a really good staff at CSBS and, and we have a lot of functional committees of, of CSBS board. So we can do a lot of different things at the same time. But then it's making sure we report that up to the board so that we don't overwhelm them, but we inform them of what we're doing and where we're at and what the next decision points are. And, oh, yeah, there's this little thing underway called the you know re redevelopment, redesign of NMLS. Um, the nationwide multi-state licensing system. Yeah, which is extremely unique in the marketplace for us to be, be positioned where we're at, where we own and operate this huge and hugely important system that was the brainchild of some of my predecessors on on the board of this organization. So I think we're really uniquely positioned. And, you know, last year was a tough year on that front, but I think we're we're a lot better positioned and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna succeed. I mean I firmly believe that we're taking the steps now and doing the work. It's been hard work and it's been a lot of time, but we're setting it up for success now and I think we're gonna have a, a good launch the next time. Well, that's great. Brett, uh, it sounds like it's going to be uh, uh, an event-filled year uh, over the next 12 months. So thanks for sitting down and chatting uh, with us in this hotel room here in San Antonio. Um, and I look forward to the year ahead. I do too. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. He has quite a year ahead of him and we will be there to help. Now, if you want to follow more podcasts from CSBS, we're available on all the major podcasting apps including Apple Podcasts. Or check us out on our website, csbs.org. Just go to the newsroom and you can easily find our pods there. I'm Jim Kurtzke. See you next time.